0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you, and enjoy. That's powerful. Grab your Bible and go to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1. Christmas, Christmas, Advent, there's always a heaviness to it. The longer that you live... You, you realize that there is, with Christmas, which is meant to be a season of hope and joy and love and peace, there's also a heaviness, isn't it there? There's the heaviness of somebody at your table that is no longer at your table. Somebody that you've, you're now missing. And that's what makes Advent such good news. Because Advent speaks light into darkness. Joy into desperate situations. Hope in situations like where there seems to be no way of escape. Joy, peace, and love. And so today, we're looking at one of the main characters of the narrative of Jesus' birth. And her name is Elizabeth. You've already met her. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at her word, uh, or the word, and we're going to look at what uh, Elizabeth says in and, and, and her story, and, and we're just going to hear a little about that, okay? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at uh, Elizabeth, we're going to look at Mary, we're going to look at the shepherds, and we're going to look at um, uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. And so I can't wait to preach each one of those sermons and, and how they're going to point us To fall more in love with Jesus. Now, I want you to grab your Bible, go to Luke chapter 1. And as you go to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be beginning in verse 5, okay? Now, I want you to think about, in the story of Jesus, um, in Luke, the first people that you meet, the first two main characters of the, the story of Jesus' birth are Elizabeth and Elizabeth's cousin Mary. Now, I want you to note how significant that is, how significant that is. It's so significant that as the first two kind of main characters or even heroes of Jesus's birth narrative are women. That is important. Many people, uh, maybe you've heard it, Many, many people will say, well, Uh, Christianity is just this patriarchal religion and it denigrates women and puts them down. And I want you to understand that the Bible, throughout the Scriptures, God does quite the opposite. God always takes women and shows their strength and raises them up and uses them in His redemptive plan. And so this is significant. He picks them up out of whatever culture Uh, or view of that culture has upon women, and he places them in his plan, and in this story, his plan of a redeemer. Okay, so here's what I want you to see. The first theme that I want you to see is Elizabeth's barrenness. Elizabeth's barrenness, okay? Verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Can somebody tell me what Elizabeth the name means? Oath of God. Oath of God. Now, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Both were advanced. Okay, so I want you to acknowledge today that this might hit home for somebody. That in this room, there might be some hurt or some weight that's carried by people who have felt uh, barrenness. Who have not been able to give birth to a child. But I want you to note something in verse 6 that her her barrenness was not a punishment for her sin. I want you to look. Verse 6 says... They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Okay, question. Were they perfect? No, of course not. No one was perfect save Jesus alone. They were not perfect, but it says they were righteous. They were right with God. They were right with God. They walked blamelessly. No one, God himself, had nothing to hold against them for. They had kept the law, and when they'd broken the law, they had fulfilled the law by offering sacrifices they were blameless. They were both in advanced in years. Now, many of you uh, ladies may have felt the biological clock ticking. And so you could imagine uh, Elizabeth here in this story, her biological clock is ticking, it's loud, and, and she is seeing the minutes in her clock go by, the hours are going by. And can you imagine the weight of her barrenness in the first century? In the first century, in this time period, when, when she's alive, um, barrenness is not just a, an individual weight that you carry, but it's a cultural one. It's a cultural one. Because all through the scriptures we hear about the blessings of children. And how they're like uh, arrows in a quiver. And you should fill your quiver with them. It's this idea that Genesis chapter 1, which we looked at this morning, some of you did in Sunday school, that, that talks about to have, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And you've got a lady like Elizabeth who says, I can't do that. There's this cultural weight that's on Elizabeth right here in this story. Can you imagine, imagine with me how maybe Elizabeth's barrenness could have turned into Elizabeth's bitterness in her heart barrenness could turn into bitterness in her heart. And maybe she went through seasons of that, but we don't hear about them. Can you imagine uh, maybe a conversation between Elizabeth and the Lord? God, I'm old. Why? Why are you doing this to me? Are you punishing me? Have I done something? Why won't you let me have children? Why are you doing this to me? I have obeyed you and I have lived for you. I'm married to a priest for goodness sake. And this is what I get? Can you imagine the bitterness that could have come along with her barrenness? It could have caused her. Her circumstances could have caused her to be bitter. But what I want you to see in this passage is that her circumstances were um, kind of the proving grounds for a God-centered hope. She hoped in God alone. Not what God could do for her, but in God Himself. Bitterness comes. Bitterness comes to us. And maybe you've experienced bitterness like I know I have. Bitterness comes to us when we feel like uh, God has not kept His end of the bargain. When you feel like you've done what you're supposed to do, but but God has not kept up His end of the deal. Bitterness comes when you have a set of expectations that God's supposed to to meet, and God doesn't meet those expectations. Have you ever been there? Bitterness comes... Bitterness comes in seasons just like that. And maybe you're in a season of bitterness. Maybe you feel like God's not kept His end of the bargain... When maybe even you feel like, God, have you gotten this wrong? And that is from this expectation. The idea of expectation that God hasn't met. And the opposite of an expectation that God has not met is the idea of God's grace. So we're going to hear about that in just a moment. Okay, so I want to turn from Elizabeth's barrenness to the angel's message to Zechariah. I want you to look down at verse 13. Verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Note that he never stopped praying. Your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call his name John. You'll call his name John. John means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And then it goes on in verse 14 and you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn away, or turn many of the uh, children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I want you to look at this passage with me, verses 13 to 17, and note what the angel says about the son who would be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Number one, he, he would be a reminder that God's gracious. You're going to call him John. Number two, it, 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 will, it will be God's grace to you. Many will rejoice at John's birth. Why? Because he's going to be great before the Lord, is what verse 15 says. He'll be great before the Lord. We don't know what that means just yet, but we're going to learn. Verse 15 continues that this baby will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, I want to stop right there and just mention that that alone should be an argument for... The sanctity of human life from conception forward. Why? Because the Spirit filled the child inside the womb. The first one to recognize and worship Jesus was an unborn baby inside a mother's womb. Verse 16 says, that God would use this child, this baby, to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then in verse 17, that it says that He will go before Him. Who is the He and who is the Him? Well, the first He is that this baby, He, will go before Him. Who is Him? God. That the baby will come before the Lord. He will go before the Lord... In what? The spirit and power of Elijah. What in the world does that mean? Now, some 500 years before um, Jesus is born, there's a prophet in the Old Testament named Malachi. Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, tells us, tells us, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I'll send the prophet Elijah before the Lord comes. Did you see that? 500 years before John the Baptist and Jesus are born, the Lord prophesies that Elijah's going to come before the Lord Jesus does. Before the Messiah comes, Elijah will. And this is what it says. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Does that sound familiar? Just what the angel said about John the Baptist lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And he will prepare, this John, this baby, John the Baptist, will prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Now imagine an angel shows up to you, You have gone into the temple. You are a priest, and it's your duty to go into the most holy place. And you go into the most holy place to present offerings before the Lord. And there in the most holy place, an angel, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel himself, stands before you. You fall down on your face, and the angel says, Don't fear, I've heard your prayer. You're going to have a son, and he's going to do all of these things. Now, I hope for most of us that that would have been evidence enough, but not for Zechariah. Zechariah says in verse 18, look at verse 18 in your word. It says, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I wonder if the angel just went like, what do you mean? Look at me. I'm an angel, right? How shall I know this, he says, for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I like how he said she's advanced in years, right? Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, he, Zechariah basically says, OK, buddy, the odds are stacked against us. This is not looking so good uh, for us to have a baby how should i know that this is really going to happen other than you as an angelic being in my presence how shall i how should i know i need another sign here okay i'll give you a sign you're going to be mute unable to speak i wonder if zechariah at that moment thought that's not what i was talking about i should have been more specific So I want you to understand what this sign was. This was a sign that God was uh, judging him for unbelief. But this was also a sign to increase Zechariah's faith. You'll be mute. And he was until the day the baby was born. And we'll look at that in a few moments. Now we're going to turn back to verse 24 and 25 to looking at Elizabeth and I want you to see, I'm going to steal the line right out of that video that we watched, that God delights in bringing life from barren places. God delights in bringing life from barren places. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself, herself hidden. I have, I've just thought, why did she hide herself? I mean... If that was you, don't you think you'd have run into the streets and burst out into all your neighbors? You would have put it out on Facebook, right? And said, Look, I'm pregnant. Look, see, God did it. But you, you wonder if her hurt, her pain from her past kept her from getting her hopes too high. And this is what it says in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked upon me to take away my reproach from among people. In verse 36, grab your Bible, look at verse 36. It says, this is when Gabriel is now speaking to Mary. Verse 36, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. God delights in bringing life from barren places, and in verse forty-three or in verse thirty-seven, excuse me, it says, "For nothing will be impossible with God." Isn't that good news? That's good news. So God delights in bringing life from barren places, and then Mary, as she's getting an announcement from an angel about a baby of her own, um, she hears about Elizabeth, and she goes to Elizabeth. Verse. 39 and forward, she goes to the hill country and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is significant for a few reasons. Number one is an unborn child was the first to recognize the Messiah's presence. Secondly, Secondly, you have a baby filled from the mother's womb with the Holy Spirit, and now you have Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's significant because that's the first time in all of biblical history that it says that the Spirit filled someone. Because every other time in the Old Testament when the Spirit um, empowered somebody, it says that the Spirit came upon them. You remember that? it it came upon samson it it came upon david but then it would leave and so the spirit was in the old testament more of a kind of a, a coat that you would put on and take off but in the new testament this is the first time that we see that now the spirit enters into someone to dwell and that's the good news of the gospel of jesus christ that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, in the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit enters to dwell in you forever, never to leave you, never to forsake you. He comes in to make His home in you. This is not the temple of God you are. It's good news. The Spirit comes in to dwell. And then John's born. John is born, we see. I want you to go all the way down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son, her neighbors and relatives. They heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. Verse 59, on the eighth day, they circumcised the child, and, and they would have called the name his name Zechariah after his father. Bless his little heart, he can't say anything. So the neighbors and relatives decided for her. Did any of you have in-laws like that? They decided for her. Zechariah it is. Praise the Lord. Now circumcising, okay? Can you hear me now? (laughs) We've got power. Okay. Verse 60. Verse 60 says, no, he shall be called John. In other words, in other words, Elizabeth preaches a gospel to them. She says, no, 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 no. God has never left us. God has never forsaken me. God has not abandoned me. In fact, this is proof that God has always been gracious to me. Always. He is giving to me an old lady what I don't deserve. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is not that you get what you deserve. Like you 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 deserve to go to heaven, so you get going to heaven. That's not good news if you get what you deserve because none of us deserve to go to heaven. All of us deserve a judgment from God, a separation from God, and we deserve the wrath of God. That's what we deserve. But grace through the gospel says that we get what we don't because God is gracious, not because I am righteous. God's gracious. No, his name's going to be called John. And they, they said... You don't have any relatives named John. I know. I know, because I don't want him to be named after any of my family that's come before. I want this to be a whole other thing. And they made signs to Zechariah. Is this, is this what you want him to be named? Zechariah, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> Give me something to write with, he says. Grab something to write with, and he writes down, his name is John. And what happens? instantaneously he's able to speak. Why? Because God used that time of muteness to increase his faith. And he placed his faith in in God who is faithful, who's kept his promise, who didn't forget him, who didn't leave him, and he put his faith in God. He agrees with what the angel has said, and God opens his mouth. Immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came upon all the neighbors. And they asked in verse 66, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. Now, here's what I want you to see, okay? Big story, big story, covers 60 and some change verses. What's the application for us? Three points of application. Number one. The incarnation of Jesus is proof that God has come to bring life in barren places. That's the incarnation of Jesus. That Jesus took on flesh to come and dwell among us. The thing that we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of the Christ child, the Messiah, the chosen one, the redeemer of the world. His coming, His coming in flesh is proof that God wants to bring life in barren places. I'm reminded of a story in Ezekiel chapter 37 where the prophet receives a vision from the Lord. And the Lord takes the prophet, puts him in a valley, and in the middle of the valley, the valley is full of dry bones. Do you remember? Exceedingly dry. God asks Ezekiel a question in that moment. Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over the bones and they'll live. And he began to speak the word of the Lord over those dry, dead bones, and something miraculous began to happen. God began to cause the bones to come together, to rattle, and on top of those bones form ligaments and sinew and muscles and skin and flesh, and it was just—it was now a human body, except there was no life. God said, I'll breathe my spirit on them and I will cause life to come into them. And my spirit that I put inside of them will cause them to come to life and walk according to my statutes. God delights in bringing life from barren places. The story of Ezekiel is our story. We were part of that Valley of dry bones. Why? Because we, you and I, were dead in our trespasses in our sins. We were dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says it. It starts out, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in verse 4 and 5 it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It is good news that God breathes life into dead things, because you and I, in our sin, are dead and apart from Christ. Dead people don't worship God. Dead people don't live for the Lord. Dead people don't get into heaven. We need someone to intervene in our lives and cause this dead body to come alive again. That's how I know Him. That's how I relate to Him. That's how I put my faith in Him. It's because He has made me alive. John says in in John chapter 3, he records Jesus saying, "Unless unless a man is born again, He cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're dead in this form, but if you will, by my spirit, put your faith in Jesus, my spirit will cause you to come alive again. This is what's so confounding when I look upon the world. is the world would say, we're living our best life now. And Jesus would say, you're just... Like a whitewashed tomb. Beautiful on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. And we put on the face of this life is amazing when we're walking in the ways of death. We have fooled ourselves in this world, claiming to be wise. We found ourselves foolish because all the things in this world that will promise to bring you life and joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment will never keep their promise but i promise you if you will come to the lord if you will come to god if you will come and bow your knee to jesus and say jesus i've tried it all i've tried it all and all i find is that i'm barren as hard as i try as many things as i do there is no life in me. There is no joy in me. There is no lasting hope or peace in me. And so I'm coming to you to confess my need for something external to affect me. I want you to intervene in my life with your life. And that's the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross for you. Is that he gave his life to give you life. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To take your wages upon himself. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, there are some of you hearing my voice today that you think you're alive, but you're dead. And that's what Jesus says to one of the churches, I think it's the church of Pergamum in the book of Revelation. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Churches. Churches can have the reputation of being alive. And they're dead. We can go through seasons where we bear no fruit and we are barren. And let me tell you, that is not God's fault. But I rejoice in Christ for what God is doing to bring life in barren places right here at Seneca Baptist this year. We can be busy about programs and serving and things and have no spiritual fruit. We are spiritually barren. But I promise if we will bow our knees and say, we've tried it all, Father. We need you to do what only you can do. Come Make life in barren places. I promise you, this church could not contain the people that God would want to fill with it. God brings life into barren places. This is the good news of the gospel, is that you're dead in your sin, and Christ came to bring you life. The second thing, second application is that life will bring disappointment, but bitterness is a choice. Life will bring disappointment, but bitterness is a choice. Have you ever recognized that life has disappointed you? Your circumstances have let you down. Have you ever been there? You are awfully quiet this morning. We go through life and our our circumstances, our disappointments, our expectations of life... They're not met, and and they can make us bitter if we're not careful. Maybe something in your life didn't turn out the way that you expected it to. Maybe a marriage failed. Maybe you didn't have children. Maybe the children that you did have, um, like Bill Cosby said, I brought you into this world, I, I could take you out. Maybe they're wandering children. Maybe they're straying from the Lord. They were raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but they have not bowed their knee to Christ as King. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe relationships have crumbled. Maybe people in your life have gotten sick and even loved ones have died. And you go, God, what are you doing up there? I'm living for you. And all you're doing is letting me down. How easy would it be to get bitter? Have you ever asked the question, why are you doing this to me? Have you ever wondered, is God punishing me? It's bitterness, guys. See, life, its circumstances will disappoint you but bitterness is a choice i've told you this before but anxiety anxiety is the fear that god might get it wrong bitterness believes that he did anxiety is the fear that god might get it wrong bitterness believes that he did And bitterness will eat you up from the inside out. Have you ever been there? You're holding on to something. Bitterness believes that God owes you something, and He didn't keep up His end of the bargain. Remember, God doesn't owe you anything except judgment. John the Baptist's birth is a reminder that if we get anything good, it's all by grace. Bitterness ruins relationships, steals joy. See, circumstances will disappoint you, but bitterness is a choice. You don't have to let it. So, what do I do? What do I do if there's bitterness in my heart? You set your hope in God alone. Advent, this first week, we celebrate hope. There were four to five hundred years of silence from God before John the Baptist came into the world, before Jesus came into the world. All of heaven seemed quiet. Throughout all of Israel's history, through biblical history, God had spoken through through priests and prophets. But now, for 500 years, people are longing for God to answer, and God's voice is not heard. Rebellion continues to increase. Sin and lawlessness increase. Hearts grow cold. Darkness pervades. Jesus came to bring hope. Hope. Set your hope in Jesus. Just like Elizabeth, it's not that God has abandoned you or forgotten you. God, if, if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, God is not punishing you through your circumstances. Now, you might be experiencing the consequences of your sin, but is there, isn't there a difference between consequences and punishment? Yes. Why, Christian, are you not punished for your sin? It's because the sinless Son was punished in your place. All of God's righteous punishment was poured out on the sinless Savior on the cross so that no punishment would come upon the believer. So I want you to set your hope in Jesus If if you are not saved, if you're still barren, if you're still lifeless, put your hope in Christ today. Do it. Don't wait. And He will bring you life and life abundantly. But if you have your faith in Jesus as Savior, you've surrendered to Him as Lord, set your hope in God. Not what He gives to you. Not your expectations of Him. Not what you think He owes you. Set your hope in God Himself. Like the psalmist said, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. Let God lead you to Himself. Humble yourself. Recognize that you're not God. That you don't know what's best. And that just like in Elizabeth's life, God had a better plan than we could ever imagine for Elizabeth. Maybe God has something different and better for you. Put your hope in God who does not forget, in God who's always gracious, in God who never leaves you, in God who never forsakes you, in God who's not forgotten you. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in his promises, in his character that is unchanging and unfailing. Put your hope there, not in your circumstances, not in what you are going through. Don't, please, Lord, don't put your hope in your feelings. Trust in Christ. His promises, His character, they're true despite what you're going through, despite your circumstances, despite your disappointments. His promises are true. Remember, put your hope in God, not what He's done for you. Or not what God can do for you from your expectations. And last, I want you to put your hope in who God has made you to be, in His identity for you. So many of my my problems in my life, my sin struggles that I struggle with, I don't know about you, but so many of those things come because I don't understand who God's made me to be. Because I don't understand what God says about me as a child of God, as one who's been saved by the grace of Jesus. I remember a number of years ago, I was struggling in a season of depression. I just said that word from a pulpit, didn't I? It's okay to go through seasons of depression. You find yourself in good biblical company. And I remember the enemy was just attacking, saying all of these accusations against me. And I was just struggling. And I went to the Holy of Holies Waffle House. And I got the all-star breakfast. And I just met with the Lord right there at a Waffle House table. And I remember I just began to journal through on one side of my journal all of the things that I felt like the enemy was saying to me. And then God reminded me that, but that's not what I say about you. So on the other side of my journal, I just began to write all of God's promises of what He had made me by grace in Jesus. You have an identity in Christ, and it is as firm as He is. It is as unshakable as He is. And your identity in Christ is not based on your goodness, your works, your merit, but in Christ's merit. And when your circumstances disappoint you, when barrenness seems to get the best of you, I want you to stand on His promises, but I want you to stand on the identity that He's given you in Christ. When Satan is whispering and accusing and lying and stealing and killing and destroying, I want you to get a journal out. I want you to write all those things down. And I want you to go to the Word of God. And I want you to say, this is what God says about me. Satan, you're right. You're right. Apart from God, all those things are true. But in Christ, this is who I am today. And I promise you'll get up from Waffle House table different. Today, let's learn from Elizabeth. Let's learn from Elizabeth. And if you've not found life in Jesus, today you have an opportunity to trust Him. Let's learn from Elizabeth that although my circumstances will disappoint me, bitterness is a choice. And let's learn from Elizabeth to set our hope in an unchanging, never failing God. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Let's stand together. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today acknowledging in this room there are those who are lost. And today, I have been praying that you would speak to their heart and save them heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If there's anybody here today who says, Ryan, I'm lost. I'm dead in my sin. I have tried to find life in all the things of this world, but I found nothing but disappointment. And today I want to turn to Jesus. If that's you, I just want you to slide up your hand and say, Pastor Ryan, that's me today. And I want to trust Christ for salvation. Is there anybody here? Pastor, I'm lost and I want to trust Jesus. I want to be saved. Just slide a hand up. For the rest of us, Father, we pray that you would root us and ground us. You'd build our house upon the rock. That though the circumstances of this world might shake us, the rock won't be moved. They might blow and they might batter, but we're held firm by the rock. Father, we're thankful that you make life in barren places. I'm asking you to bring, breathe fresh life into each of our lives, each of our, our hearts. Breathe fresh life into our church and cause us to live like never before in Christ. Filled with your Spirit. Father, help us when times are trying to rest on who You are, on what You say, and of who You've made us to be. We love You, Lord. We thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, as we sing together...